Hi, everyone. I'm Jill Smokler, and I've got issues. I've got a ton of issues, actually, and I'm pretty sure you do, too. And I'm definitely sure we'll both feel better after talking about them. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get started. Today's issue is something that I really, really need a crash course in, and that is money. And I'm so excited to have one of the best experts out there in all things financial, and that is Jill Schlesinger. In case you aren't familiar with Jill, which I imagine is practically none of you, Jill is an Emmy and Gracie award-winning business analyst for CBS News. Jill appears on CBS radio and television stations nationwide covering the economy, markets, investing, and anything else having to do with the dollar sign. She hosts the podcast Jill on Money and is the author of the book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to be with you. I lo- You know, we have very old-fashioned names. You know, the- there are no more Jills. You know that, right? There are very few Jills and we're actually both Jill S. So yeah. I have to, when I Google myself, because I do to look for headshots and look for my bio, because that's where I have it is Google. Mm. I would type in Jill S and you would come up first. Now you're Stop like, Stop it. I'm I, really, <laughs> I think there, probably, there are probably other Jill S's out there. I but, think so. I think okay. so. Google knows you first though now. All right. Um, anyway, I want to jump right into money um, because money is very much on the forefront of my mind. I, in general, consider myself a relatively bright person about most things, uh, but I had a really stark wake-up call when I was going through my divorce process mm. when I realized that I just was totally checked out with money. I was not paying attention. I was preoccupied with the kids, with my job, with just getting through the days. And I just let everything fall to my husband. And now I look back at it and I'm horrified that I let something that important fall to someone who I'm no longer coupled with. And, um, you know, I look back with a lot of regret. Is that... Uh I, am I alone there? Is no. that something? No, but Please I hate that. You know, it's funny. Uh, I just interviewed Dan Pink about his book called Regret. Okay. And um, I'm not a huge fan of regret in general. Uh, mostly, I mean, look, you would, would you do it differently? Of course. But there is something to be said for an allocation of labor in a relationship that makes a lot of sense. I think that where a lot of people fall short, whether it's um, you know, one spouse just handing over responsibility, it doesn't mean that you're not accountable to the decisions that the couple's making. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, if you and your husband had had a conversation, you said, look, honey, I love you. I trust you and all that. You're you're the one who likes to do the money stuff. I like to do a lot of the kids stuff. I'm going to do this. You do this. And then let's try to get together once a quarter just to review everything. I'll tell you where the kids are. It's like almost like having quarterly board meetings Mm. and you share information because I think with financial stuff, things can get away from the person managing it and the non-involved spouse. So what is great is a reminder that it's totally normal for you to have a division of labor, but it's not okay to just check out. And and I always say that about um, a lot of people as they get older, 
again, it's weird. It used to be like women check out. It's not really, I have not found that. I find that one person in the couple likes to check out. Mm-hmm. They just don't like money crap. And, yeah. um, but I, I think that um, when people say to me, I'm, doc- I'm not good at math. I say, well, can you add? Can you subtract? Yep. Can you multiply? You the answer have- in my case is really no. Oh, <laughs> so stop it. You have a calculator. <laughs> you have a calculator. I think you can do it. And and so I <sighs> think that what has to happen is there has to be a game plan. In other words, I wonder in your experience, if you were making decisions about your kids, did you involve your spouse? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? Probably mm-hmm. a spouse, like maybe your your husband said, you know what? I totally trust you do that. But you, you sort of did... Inf- you, you informed him, right? right? It has to be the same thing about money that, you know, I'm making decisions on behalf of our family and yeah. I just want to inform you. And, you know, for women, the the hard thing to really um, reckon with is that you're probably going to, you know, statistically, at least I love statistics. I'm sorry. I'll admit <laughs> it. Um, you're going to probably outlive your male spouse and you really want to know what's going on. And you want to be, you don't want to like, if God forbid one of you drop dead, the other person has to know how to manage the remaining financial life. And that means everything from if someone's managing your money for you, that you have a relationship with that person. And by the way, if you hate Mm -hmm. the money manager, fire that manager and say, I'm not working with that person. Mm -hmm. And if that means that you need to know how, what's the bill paying system? You have to understand it just so you know how it happens. I mean, it doesn't have to be death. It can be that, um, you know, I cross the street today. I get hit by the M57 bus and my girlfriend has to know where the shit is. Like, where right. is our stuff? And that has to be communicated. Or even just I stop working and all of a sudden I have the time to take over or something. And and I have no idea when I'm looking at anything, what I'm looking at. So. At, at, And I want to say that for if you're the so I'm the one who takes care of this in our couple. And there's a part of me that has always been like reluctant to like sit down and spend the time and really go through everything. And then I said, oh, I got to practice what I preach and sitting down and doing it does take time. It's like Mm -hmm. anybody who has to teach somebody, somebody, something that you that comes naturally to you, you go through and you take the steps and you do it. And it does again. If, if, okay, so if the two Jills, if we're, if we're together, we're a couple, it doesn't mean that if I show you how to do everything, you have to then take it over, but you have to feel comfortable that you could take it over and that you feel comfortable with the decisions that are being made. In your book, you offer 13 concrete ways to right specific financial wrongs. Are there financial wrongs that women at midlife specifically make more than men at midlife or more than women at other points in our lives? I think um, no matter what point in your life, the one chapter that um, I'm most passionate about and the the time I get on my soapbox the most is about estate planning. And you don't have to have a lot of money to do estate planning. We've just come through a horrendous two-year period where we know that weird stuff can happen and it can creep up on you. And it means that Every single person needs to have a will, a power of attorney, which is a document that instructs somebody to act as your agent or, you know, to make it almost like a financial decision on your behalf. And mm-hmm. probably the most important document you can have is a healthcare proxy, a well thought out healthcare proxy. Uh, it, it has to contemplate awful things. 
And a lot of people do not like contemplating awful things. But Let's if you don't, up. what exactly is a healthcare proxy? So a healthcare proxy is um, a, assigning somebody the right to make a healthcare decision on your behalf if you are incapable of doing so. So remember when I just got hit by a bus just a few minutes ago? Unfortunately. I get hit. I'm so sorry. You know what? The M57 bus <laughs> does come around the corner very quickly. I just want to be clear about that. So it's I've often heard. my it's it's my it's my go-to, you never know. Um <laughs> so in that if I'm unconscious and I and the doctor says, what can we do? They're gonna come to the person and you're gonna walk into the hospital and say, This is my spouse, Jill. I am Jill. I am her healthcare proxy. It could be your sister. It could be a spouse. It could be anybody. And you will make a decision on my behalf. Now, the thing that's really important about this is it forces you to understand what your wishes are and how you want to spend bad times in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to do for a lot of people. Sorry about that. That's my dog contemplating bad things in life happening to mommy. Um, It was one of our three or four, for sure. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think... I don't think this is a particular female or male. It's a human being thing. We do not want to go and talk about, well, what happens if I am permanently disabled? What happens if I need to get um, intubated? Do I want someone to do that? What happens? How do I want my last you know, days and months or weeks on earth? What do I want to happen? So it forces very uncomfortable conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, you're going to hear me fudge on this all the time because I hate to say things that are male, female. I don't gender mm-hmm. things. I'm telling you that the this is a universal human being thing yep. that people don't like to do this. And parents don't like to think about, well, you know, oh, my my kid just married an asshole who I hate. And I want to make okay. sure that if I die, that I don't want the asshole to get our money. And there are ways to do that. Well, you don't like that? It happens. All of these thoughts are very unpleasant, and I prefer not to think about that. <laughs> I know. I know. And um, it's funny. For some reason, I, I, and I wrote about this in the book, like, look, I'm not freaked out by this. And maybe it's because I had a father who was very um, communicative about his wishes and how he wanted his life to end. And it made it a lot easier. I think many times we we confuse our discomfort um, with what happens next. So we're discom- mm-hmm. we're, we're we're uncomfortable today talking about that. I don't want to think that my kid's going to marry an idiot, but my kids marry idiots all the time. So I don't want to punish my kid for that, but I want to make sure I provide some safety nets around the various potential outcomes. And I think that, you know, when my father would talk about how he would say, I don't want to be kept alive if this is what my quality of life is. And he said it when he was well, he checked back in with us when he was sick. We checked back in when he was well again, and we really talked about it so that when the end came, my sister and I were so clear. It was such a relief because we knew what his wishes were. Mm-hmm. And it's terrible to put your kids in a position where you have not done that. So I'm going to guilt. It's like the reverse guilt. If you don't do it, your kids might hate you at the end. No, that's very wise. That makes total sense. One sidebar question about the kids. What if they refuse to get a prenup and they are getting married? What would you do? It's it's not that hard. Uh, what you do for, I mean, prenups are hard, but they're very hard. I have a friend who's doing a postnup right now. 
Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, caught her husband cheating. She says, I don't trust you, but I'm going to stay with you and you're going to have to earn my trust back. However, you're oh, going to wow. sign that you're going to sign this document. And this is a postnuptial agreement where um, here's what I get. Here's what you get. If so, this doesn't work, it was fascinating. It's actually. a post you fucked up agreement. You betcha. And in fact, that's, I think what the, the lawyers called it. Um, <laughs> so what I, I mean, let's say that your kid gets married, is getting married and you're not so crazy about this, the, the spouse to be. Um, you might do something that's very easy to do. You might say, you know what? If I were to die, I want to make sure that there is a trust established that's in my child's name. Um, and that trust will stipulate kind of how the money flows into that trust. Now, why is that important? Because that trust is in my kid's name and is not then just received outright. If it's received outright, it becomes a marital asset in many states. Mm-hmm. And so if the if the marriage goes south, then the idiot that the kid married is going to get half of it. But when it's in trust, it's a document that's formed in its its own entity. And so when you die, that trust has funds that are pushed into it. Your kid is the beneficiary of that trust. You can make someone else the trustee of that trust. And okay. you have a lot more control over the disposition of the assets that's going into that child's name. Okay. So you won't be rolling over in your grave. Forever, God willing, hopefully. No. Poo, poo, poo. Okay. Well, that's comforting. Yeah. Good. Um, something that fascinates me with women is that we are so open in talking about everything. When I ran Scary Mommy, there was nothing that was off limits at all. I mean, I can't even think of a single thing that was off limits except the granular details of money. People did not talk about about salaries, about, you know, tax refunds, about just, you know, dollar amounts of things. Why is that? Um, you know, look, it's funny thing about money. Uh, I think there's there's two parts of it, which is like there's a shame factor in some respects. Um, and I know you might think that's weird, like, oh, my God, my, you know, people will call in and tell me they're having terrible sex, but they won't tell me about their financial lives because there's some sort of inherent judgment that they're making about themselves and about their own lives. And that's too bad. Um, you know, money becomes this really weird, concrete receptacle for everything you doubt about yourself. Um, so that's why people fight about money so much in relationships, because it's much easier for me to be like, Jill, you spend too much money rather than Jill, you're a shitty mom, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. like that, like it's a much easier thing and it's less loaded in some respects. So I think that one of the reasons why I say I want to demystify finances and your financial life on my show is that it's just it's just a means to an end. We're very judgy about it with ourselves. We're judgy about it with others. Um, I'm not a finger wagging financial person. If anyone wants sort of like a warm place to be a complete financial fuck up, then come on to my show. Like there's no there's no judgment. I don't think you're a bad person. I feel like a lot of the industry has um, seems to really take some sort of strange evangelical view of money. And it's just, it, it's just not that. And we're human beings and we screw up and we are not, it doesn't mean you're a bad person if you don't know about money. And it doesn't mean you're a good person if you have a pile of money. It's just like a thing. It's just one of those things in your life. Like you're left-handed, you're right-handed, 
you're you're kind of in touch with your money, you're not. To me, it's it's like a psychological barrier for some people. And it can get really thorny because it can unfortunately lead you down a bad road that can actually be fixed, but for your own emotional nonsense that gets in the way. So it is, um, I would, I would like it, you know, if I were like the Esther Perel of, um, of money, which is like no judgments, things happen. Let's get you on the next, let's take the next best step that you can take and let's not be in judgment of yourself or anyone else around this. Yeah. You got to get the accent down. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, listen, I have a total crush on her and I got to interview her and I actually told her, as I want you to know, I actually have a huge crush on you. And my girlfriend of 20 years is downstairs. She goes, my husband's in the next room of 30 years. Let's talk. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. So I have a ton of questions from the She's Got Issues community. So I've picked out several that I would love to ask you. Sure. Um, let's start with Hannah. Hannah asks, should retirement investments be put on hold to prioritize handling inflation and the price hikes in food, gas, etc.? We finally got our heads above water, but it seems like inflation has reclaimed our financial cushion and it's almost like we're back to square one. Help. Listen, if you if the difference between putting a, a pause or reducing retirement contributions is the difference between you borrowing money and credit card debt or some other way, then yeah, you gotta, you've got to deal with reality. Um, you don't want to go backwards. Um, there are some inflation. So inflation, you know, while I, I hazard to say that it is temporary, I think it will retreat by the end of the year and it, will, it won't be zero. It won't be 2% where it was before COVID, but it's going to start to go down for a lot of weird and technical reasons, but the pace of, in, of increases depending on what happens in the with the war in Ukraine, that it should it should moderate. A couple of things that you want to think about. Whenever you're managing a bad cash flow situation, of course you want you'll pull back on your retirement. But do not tell me you're pulling back on your retirement and also then contributing to college funding. That means you don't put money into college. You don't put, you pull back. Maybe you just reduce it and you say, I'm putting it, uh, my re- I'm going to reduce my retirement contribution up to my employer match. Okay, great. And if I can't do that and I was doing 6%, maybe I'll do 3%. Let me see how it goes. You should also go look for a job. And you should you should not actually stay in a job that's not paying you accordingly. It's a tight labor market. Job switchers get much better raises than people who stay where they are. And that's hmm. kind of a drag because a lot of people are comfortable and that's okay, but you've got to know what you're asking for. So it's a, you know, it the average job changer right now is getting an 8% increase, which magically is exactly the pace of inflation. Um, If you are looking at your life and you're saying, where do I cut? What do I do? There is no other way for me to make money or we're finally with our heads. Then you just got to go through the numbers and make some decisions. You know, I got very snippy this week. I'm talking to you um, right after gas prices reached an all-time nominal high. Nominal just means the number is the highest point ever. When you adjust it for inflation, this is not the highest level of gas prices. Got it. The number is so shocking to see. It is shocking. It's totally shocking. Um, But it's also like why your parents are like, oh, when I bought my house, it was $50,000, but it's not adjusted for inflation. So, you know. Totally. And it's also like, I will take that 
I will pay as much as I have to for gas because yeah. Yes. Well, so so what I try to say to people is like if you think that driving is your God-given right, then you're really pissed. And I get that people are pissed, but you know what? It's not your God-given right to drive. Like calm down, get your heads into the game. Here's the problem. Yeah. This all happened very quickly and it happened suddenly to um to go from a 2% inflation rate to an almost 8% inflation rate within two years is shocking to the system. Now, let's remind ourselves that we have some control here. Maybe we can drive less, or maybe instead of driving less, we're going to say, you know, we are going to take a 10-day summer vacation. We're going to take an eight-day summer vacation. And you know what's mm. weird to me, if I may get on my soapbox for one second? Two years ago, we're in the middle of COVID. We think our, like, we basically think humanity is going to die. We're so mm. scared. And I started a daily, I had doing, I was doing a twice a week podcast and I went to daily podcasts on March 14th of 2020, because I was so inundated with questions. And, you know, those questions were scared questions, scary questions. Those were people who lost their livelihood, freaking out, worried about sick relatives, worried about their kids, home and all this stuff. And at the end of like, say three months, everyone's like, I'm just feel so fortunate. Like I now know what my priorities are. And I don't have to go out to dinner every night and I don't have to get mani pedis. And now I know. And it's like two years later, we have some sort of amnesia mm-hmm. around that. So we just got this incredible lesson in life that helped prioritize spending, mm-hmm. right? Food on the table is number one. Yep. Right. Numero uno, dos and tres. And after that, everything is negotiable including mm-hmm. like pretty much, you know, anything related to utility bills. And this like, you'll juggle it, but you are in touch with it. You should be in touch with it after the last mm-hmm. two years. And I also want to remind many of the people who are, who are listening right now, don't assume that there is going to be uh, some, there's somebody to blame you know, there's, there's choices that were made in the heat of a once in a hundred year pandemic that we're paying for right now. And it's not, it's not like, Oh, how terrible this person is, or this administration is, or this thing was, or it's just bad luck. But it's not as bad luck as someone dropping a bomb on your city or having a pandemic wipe out almost a million people. So I kind of want us to get our heads in the game here, right? Like, come on, we're rational people and we know how to manage this. So make your choices If you need to pull back on your retirement temporarily, fine. But if you find yourself with extra money, then make sure you increase it again. That's a really good answer. We had a ton of questions about retirement and Lisa wanted to know if there was a basic formula that you had to come up with exactly what you need or an idea of what you need to plan on retiring. I always love rules of thumb because I get to say, I don't believe in rules of thumb. Um, you know, I I think what's hard is no, there is no rule of thumb because it's like saying, are there any rules about health that everybody needs to heed? So like, okay, um, try to walk a little bit. Try not to smoke. Don't drink too much. Okay, now what's next? And now it's all your family history. It's sort of the same thing with retirement planning. So there is uh, Fidelity years and years ago came out with like, oh, it's 10 times your salary, which is just baloney. It's complete horse crap because um, the 
I don't know what the circumstances are. So one woman can say, I am a, a, a public school teacher who's 55 years old. I have $100,000 saved. My house is paid for. Is that enough? And you find out that the pension that this woman's going to receive, plus her social security, completely covers her needs. And so, yeah, that's enough. Mm-hmm. But if you are asking me if you're a 55-year-old woman and you have $100,000 in retirement savings and you spend $85,000 a year and you've got no pension and no one's leaving you a boatload of money, no, that's not enough. So there are no rules of thumb. The rule of thumb in like boring financial ease and is do me a favor, try to save early, try to put a little bit of money away, stay out of consumer debt. And that's it. Like I have this thing I call the big three and people get so annoyed by it because it's incredibly boring. It's like saying, you know, don't smoke and don't drink too much and walk a little bit. That's it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is make sure you've got an emergency reserve fund of six to 12 months of your living expenses, somewhere safe, not invested, not in your equity in your home, like a boring account. Okay. Number two, pay down consumer debt as quickly as you can. Consumer debt means credit card debt, high interest um, loans, like sometimes some old auto loans are a little bit Mm -hmm. more expensive. Um, And it can mean school debt. School debt can be 6%. And that's kind of high considering that you're only getting less than 1% on your savings and checking accounts. And then number, so number one, emergency reserve. Two, pay down consumer debt. Three, try to maximize your retirement contributions to the best of your ability. And that can mean that you can only put, you know, a hundred bucks a month away. It can mean that you're trying to put away up to the match for your employer. And it can mm-hmm. mean that you can put away the maximum that the government allows $20,500 into a 401k, but to the best of your ability, that's it. Those are your three. Make sure you okay. have enough life insurance so you don't screw your family up and make sure you do your wills. Now you're done. That's it. Those are your, your those are your big five. Okay. I think, I think that those are great takeaways. And I think that's an awesome note to end on. So Thank you, Jill. Thank you so much for that uh, amazing advice. I think that was so helpful. And I know my community will appreciate it very much. And I'm always happy to answer questions. So if they have specific questions, they can go onto my website, come on my show. It's jillonmoney.com. And there's a little button that says contact us. And then we wrangle people to come on the show. And we just do like, uh, it's, it's like doing a audio financial plan with you. And I'll have all of the links to your books and your your radio show and the, um, podcast in the show notes. Happy to do it anytime. Okay, thanks again. Sure, thank you. Thanks so much for listening today and come back next week for another issue. She's Got Issues is produced by Kristen Kelbley, Gwen Sound, Kira Shine, and me, Jill Smokler. Please do us a favor and rate and review the podcast and tell a friend because she's got issues too.